Welcome to another episode of the Hockey News on the A podcast. I'm Jacob Stoller alongside Pat Williams as always. And for today's episode, we're pleased to be joined by Connor Carrick, defenseman for the Providence Bruins. Fifth round pick of the Capitals in 2012, the Blue Liner went on to play 241 NHL games with the Capitals, Maple Leafs, Stars, and Devils. He's played another 250 games with various AHL clubs. Um, as I mentioned before, he's signed with Providence ahead of the year. He's helped anchor the Blue Line for a team that is sitting atop the AHL this season. And in 33 games, he has four goals, 15 assists, and 19 points. And also, Connor is uh, you know diving his his hands in media a bit. He has a podcast called The Curious Competitor Podcast and has some other content on his YouTube as well. Before we get into that, Connor, how you doing? I'm good, Jacob. Thanks for having me on, Pat. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. So speaking of the media side and whatnot and the podcast, tell us a bit about that, what you're doing with your YouTube channel, with the podcast, and, and also how that all started. I've always been a storyteller, right? I, I enjoy it. I think it's a, it's a wonderful craft. And I think it's really what uh, always drew me into the game was understanding, uh, you know, people, what's, what stories do they tell themselves? How do they engage with the world and, and how do they design uh, their life and their career? Uh, to to maximize the experience of both. And so that's really what the podcast explores. Um, and it was a medium that I was unfamiliar with. I, I had a reading habit like everybody. I'm trying to read more, uh, less on Twitter and on my phone and, and real, you know, paper books. And my wife at the time, uh, Lexi is her name, and, and she's like, you know, I really think you'd enjoy this, this podcasting thing, uh, listening to them. And I kind of told her to kick rocks and I had enough hobbies I was trying to nail down and and eventually I came around to it and I was hooked. And, uh, you know, kind of my learning style is, is very much a show and tell. So everything I would listen to, I would repackage and regurgitate to, to her. And uh, she had enough and said, you need a different avenue to, you know, explore these conversations that interest you so much. And, and the podcast was born. Just for you as a player, you know, how cool is it to sort of peel back the curtain and show fans and whatnot, a perspective of things that they probably wouldn't get in the traditional media interview if it maybe wasn't in a conversational forum with someone like yourself. I think, I think that style of content is so captivating. There was a, there was a fit, a feature on the NHL website when Evgeny Malkin got hurt a number of years back. And I, I'm forget I'm blanking on the uh, Pittsburgh Penguins trainers uh, name at the time, but he went over to uh, Russia and there was Malkin uh, skating in like a dark rink there were benches you know on the ice and he's like flipping the puck over his stick and diving underneath them and then he's in the pool with like Sergey Gonchar and all these guys and then he's out in the parking lot and he's got you know the old school orange hockey uh, you know street ball and he's juggling it in and out of these hurdles and I found that uh, you know documentation fascinating and I and I always was was hungry for that I was kind of on the the leading edge where, you know, I was a YouTube kid growing up. That's, uh, you know, where I learned a lot of my, my tips and tricks. And I mean, the accessibility now through uh, social media has exploded in, in the best way possible. I, I still think hockey can add more texture and more color uh, to our people in our game uh, to, to, to draw people in everything in sport uh, does revolve around money we we know this we see this you know with lockouts and, and cbas and things like that and i think it's a great opportunity to to continue to grow the game and uh hockey's come a long way um but i think there's also room to be critical of you know what is our fan missing what is the prospective fan not getting that hasn't 
drawn them in yet uh, to, to a deeper degree. And, and I love this sport. So it's, uh, it's always been fun to peel the onion in, in different ways. Quick follow-up there, Connor. What do you think as someone in the game that hockey in the NHL could really improve or increase to attract, whether it's new fans or you know, keep the ones they have right now? I mean, the most glaring example in recent memory was the last dance of Michael Jordan. So everyone was home during the pandemic. And here you have this unbelievably captivating uh, content. It was it was it was must see TV. I could not wait for the next episode to come back. I know a lot of hockey guys have watched multiple uh, reruns of that uh, documentary. And I'm in the game. I watched hockey growing up. Uh, why would why couldn't there be a documentary on Chris Chelios the Sunday that it ended, or Mario Lemieux and how he got a piece of the Pittsburgh Penguins, or Wayne Gretzky and getting dealt. Uh, you know, in the way that he did as, as, you know, being the greatest player of all time. Those are, are stories that I'm aware of, you know, as a player, but I, I want to know the nitty gritty. I want to know the details. I want footage of the phone call that exactly happened. And to fast forward to the modern day game, um, Connor McDavid has a, you know, very testy knee injury. You know, Mark Lindsay moves into his home. Were there cameras, uh, rolling when the different doctors were telling him over the phone what their thoughts were i don't know but that would that would be captivating information to, to sort through and when it whether it ever sees the light of day you allow those players and those people to have the final cut but you can't go back in time and capture that content if you don't have it and uh i i am always impressed at the quality of person uh and an athlete that that plays this game the way people train the the longevity the marathon of the season and i just think there are so many critical points where uh the the drama around it is downplayed because it's uh, the standard it's the industry standard uh but for people outside the game uh that information's fascinating and and really intriguing and, and draws them in for you know for someone that grew up watching the game as a fan and you're still a fan but you've also you're now on the inside as well um what is different from being on one side of that glass to the other side of the glass? Well, so I'll give you a picture of my childhood. So I was born in 1994, mm -hmm. right, in, in Chicago, kind of the dark era of the Chicago Blackhawks. They weren't on TV. Talk about hiding your product. We were talking a little bit off the air prior to, to recording. I can't name many Chicago Blackhawks growing up. I didn't watch the team. My favorite team growing up was the Colorado Avalanche because really the only – uh, hockey we got on TV was come playoff time. Uh, I forget who had the rights at the time, if it was Versus or uh, NBC or whoever. And the Avs were in the playoffs every year. In 2001, I'm seven. They win. I like the little cursive C on the Avalanche jersey for Sackick. And you know, that was the, the crux of, of my media exposure growing up. I'll give you an example. Like I played in the World Junior Tournament. I didn't know what it was until I saw John Carlson you know, scoring, uh, you know, that infamous goal. I was in the tournament three years later. Like he's a 91, I'm a 94. And, and like looking back, there were things that were a big deal either in my career or in hockey in general that like, I, I just kind of missed from being uh, born where I was. And I was in an American hockey hotbed, like Chicago's not Scottsdale, mm -hmm. you know? And, uh, 
I would I would watch ESPN every day I got home from school to catch like the one highlight every two weeks that was in the top ten. And uh, this isn't to be I don't know whose fault it is. I just I have always had an appetite uh, for more. And uh, anyone who's ever been close to our game, it, it's it's so incredibly complex and so incredibly uh, athletic that um, when you see it and you get your hands on it, you you really can appreciate the quality of athlete out there. And and uh, if guys won't champion them, th- themselves, I'll I'll do it for them. If I you know move on to their side someday, but um, it, it'll be interesting to see the the growth curve to come. You know, I was speaking with uh, Thomas Harley from uh, the Dallas Stars system, and, you know, we got into a really good discussion on on cutbacks, right? And just part of the defensive game that, you know, like you said, there's so many details and so many different layers of the game, but for so much of the media coverage out there, we don't get much beyond the cliches and the, you know, working hard in 60 minutes, that kind of stuff. What can uh, what can both players, I guess, and media do to draw draw out some of those better details of the game and really start to tell those stories. I think keep looking at the the macro and the micro. I think analytics will show a lot of light on this and we can start to pay attention to who's having success and consistently and why, you know? So I think to zoom in on one aspect of the game, let's look at the power play. So I've been around two organizations uh, in the NHL that had, premier power plays. I was, I was around the Washington Capitals power play and I was around the Leafs power play when uh, 16 and 34 came in to the league, right? And they were, they both had different looks. You know, Washington was very much a let's, let's, let's suck four defenders over towards the puck carrying side and make a, uh, a weak side play to a yawning, you know, an open net, a, a goaltender who's down and, and preferably screened. It has to pick up a broken play over to Ovechkin. He's going to bang it in the open net. And a lot of teams have this, you know, one-time threat look, you know, the one-three-one look um, with the idea of having a very stationary shooter. And it's kind of the other four guys' job to sort out how to suck the defenders in, occupy their attention, and, and get the puck over to, you know, to score cleanly. And then when they overplay that guy, number eight, they'll throw different wrinkles thereafter. But that's their primary look. Or you can look at, the Leafs power play, which I, when I was there, I was so impressed at the simplicity mm. and it really was this, uh, this one, three, one look, but with the sticks downhill. So now they're not in their offsides and all they, the, the focus was how can we draw three defenders? So the two forwards and one of the defensemen away from the net and then just get something ugly to the crease where we can three on one, the, the one defender who's back. And uh, it, it was, it was masterful, and there were all these little micro skills in there um, that previously I just I just didn't know. You know, like I remember we had a rule in my junior team: no backhand passes. It was, it was like a, just something that we talked about or from our coach. And then all of a sudden, I'm watching. I'm, I'm in Washington Capitals power play meetings, and they are specifically discussing when, how they cannot wait for F1 to trap down a Nick Backstrom because he's going to make a pass to Carlson on the back end through him, who's going to be able to stand in the middle of the ice, not out wide where the pass is particularly safe. Uh, but then the one-time pass will eventually be too long for the goaltender to respond and, and the F2 could play out on it. So it's like, how can we continue to, to yin yang, like understand what's driving success at a macro level and micro wise, like what are the skills that allow guys to get in these positions consistently? 
And I'll give you another example. Um, in preseason this year, there was a particular uh, shot taken in the video, um, you know, way outside the dots. And there was a conversation around the statistical analysis of like how low percentage this shot is. I understand a lot of you guys have been told to get more pucks to the net, uh, but there was a discussion with the player that like, with the way the team wants to play this year, they value the possession over that shot and, and to wait for the cavalry to come off the bench and, and play, you know, instead of taking a one-on-two shot, wait for guys to change and, and you know, get into the cycle. Well, now you're really shaping behavior over the course of a season, getting very different looks. And, and uh, it, it was an analytic-based call on, while I know this feels good, uh, the results just aren't supported by the, by the data. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very excited to see how that shapes uh, behavior. And, and it'll, I think it'll break down the, the barrier behind some of those cliches, things that people who've been around hockey for a long time identify as good plays. But as they start to zoom out, they recognize like, you know what, actually that the play just doesn't work as often as I, I thought it did. Yeah. Or it just doesn't drive possession the way we, we want as, a, as an organization. And so you, you shift away to, uh, more consistent behaviors elsewhere. Has there ever been part of you that's gotten or has an interest in working in hockey ops? Like, for example, Lee Stepniak was hired by the Coyotes as, and I remember in the press release, he said his role was a liaison between the analytics staff and the coaching staff and management. Sort of, you know, deciphering some of those nuances you're talking about, looking at numbers, but taking the tactical element as well. Has that something that's ever crossed your mind? Absolutely. I think I'm, I'm fascinated by like uh, systems that allow yeah. for organizations to have consistent success and, and how to identify what flavor it is that they, they want to play with them. When you look at the top clubs in the NHL, um, they all have it. They're sitting atop of a process that's uh, been instilled, you know, years prior in terms of determining, okay, what do we value? Uh, how do we choose players that play that way? How do we draft players that play that way? How do we sign players that support the players we've drafted that play this way? And how do we uh, keep a coach that uh, coaches this way and, and, and reinforces it? So there's this whole level of, of organizational cohesion. Um, I think you're seeing it in Boston. Like you have a, a particular selection at each position in the NHL for them, right? Like they have – they definitely value – uh, defensively aware forwards, right? Like like each and every forward on their team has a certain uh, level of ability defensively and, and abrasiveness uh, where, where they're, they're good at angling. They're good at, uh, they're crafty with their stick. They're, they're not, they're searching for hits, but they're also breaking up plays with their sticks. They're not uh, kind of old school energy guys. They, they play with a higher level of detail that way all throughout their lineup. There's, there's no one, you could defensively feel super comfortable with uh, in a two-on-one against, right? Mm-hmm. And defensively, they have, you know, some particular length and Carlo and, and Forbert, and then they have some spice with, uh, you know, Connor Clifton and, and Matty Grizzlick's unbelievably mobile. And so you, you have this, like, really cool blend of what feels like highly selected players. You know, Tampa's done this, where they have premier, you know, creme de la creme, high-end offensive talent in you know Kucherov point Stamkos and then even on their second and third lines like they've got guys that would identify as depth guys but kind of outskill their role league-wide like Alex Kalorn makes plays that are superb uh you know like oh he he is paid to like 
when pucks on the wall, be a nuisance in front of the net, uh, you know, be physical, be 215 when he hits a guy. And then all of a sudden he's got like this 15 foot toe drag uh, to set Stamkos up the other night, you know, for that tap in, I think he had a hat trick. And with the way they play, like they, they value size on defense. You, you can see it. Um, New Jersey, like uh, they're having uh, some particular success. Like you can tell they have no problem with a certain type of like road runner forward with, you know, high energy, high octane, uh, you know, forward with great size on defense. And it, it just has fit, you know, and, and uh, so, so to sort of set that vision aside to equip players with the information of like what they're here to do and to, to help them identify how to do that. That's what I do with my own uh, career. And at the same time, I think I've always understood the power of, uh, of a good mentor, how it can change the trajectory of your whole life and career. And uh, who knows, if I, if I can be that person for someone, I know how hard it is to get better. And at the same time, I know how much easier it is with proper help and, and communication and clarity. And uh, yeah, it stuff fires me up. Um, you mentioned a bit about the NHL or hockey having those sort of one land, last dance productions and whatnot. I'm curious if you've ever been in an organization that had even the smallest bit of you know, behind the scenes content, whether it's like one of those mic'd up videos um, or I'm not, if there was a camera there following you guys, how did you find that guys were receptive to that? Did people clam up a bit having cameras around and yourself personally, if that's ever been with you, like, did you feel uncomfortable or, or what was that like? I think so. I mean, I, I think guys, be, you always behave a little differently when you know you're being watched sure. flatly. I think that comes down to uh, maturity and, and trust in the people putting together these productions. Like can the management uh, and whoever's producing this, like, of course you need some meat, uh, right. some controversy, but don't ever put someone in a position, um, you know, to jeopardize their, their career. I don't think you need to go there. Uh, like I, I guarantee in the last dance, there were cuts made of, you know, Michael's not happy with the way this makes him look and he wants this out. And I'm sure the producer was pissed saying this is really captivating stuff, but you know, in order to make sausage, like this is, we have to come to some sort of agreement. Mm. And, uh, I think there's a, a tasteful, I mean, not unsimilar to who was it, uh, with the McDavid knee injury. The only way I, the reason I know it was that captivating, I think it was Sportsnet did a feature that I saw on YouTube. Yeah. But again, it was like three different cuts. I had to go on YouTube to go find it. Like I didn't even see this. Like I, I didn't know that this was you know particularly out there and, and talked about until I had a friend of a friend say, "Hey, I think this is really cool. You should check this out." And uh, it was it was really well done and super interesting. Well, how about that for an interview? He uh, he certainly gave us uh, his money's worth. A fantastic interview. Good bang for our buck there with, with how much time we had. But actually, we're going to make it a two-parter. So what you just saw was was part one. Next week, we'll give you part two because, you know, we couldn't get enough of him, honestly. He was so insightful and awesome. And actually, it's funny. One thing he mentioned that had me thinking was this conversation I had with my dad, like, uh, I think it was three weeks ago, about he was saying how he didn't know many players of Chicago Blackhawks because they weren't really on TV then. And I was talking about it with someone about how now we live in this world where Twitter and other various like conversation forums, everyone has an opinion on a player. But back in the days when a, a team was only on like, let alone I'm talking about after the radio days, but like when teams were on TV, but not for every 
game. How, like, people must have had such varying opinions on someone. Because they could have been based on solely when they went to the game mm-hmm. or the one time they watched him. I, I, I don't know. I thought that was interesting. And I thought it was really neat the way Connor broke it down. And also, you know, about the John Carlson thing and the goal and how he didn't really even know about that. I guess so. I mean, if you're Canadian, I think you would know about the World Juniors mm-hmm. given how it's kind of ingrained in, in the hockey culture in terms of, like, it's always been primetime viewing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I thought, I mean, that guy's just a fountain of, of, of knowledge and, and insight. And you made a great point, too, right? Like, he's growing up in the Chicago area. Certainly yeah. a, a market with a lot of hockey history and a good hockey culture. And mm-hmm. um, you couldn't watch the games on television, um, the home games. And you didn't know what the World Junior Championship uh, right. was. And Yeah, it was very different because, um, like you said, if, if you saw a player on a given night, you might get one opinion. Somebody sees him on a different night, right? Like, the all the things we have today where you can go go online and you get a different opinions or you can go, I mean, you have real time analytics uh, coming out for, for NHL games. Uh, it was, yeah. I mean, it wasn't even that long ago in the grand scheme of things, but it was a time where, you know, you would maybe wait a week just sometimes even to get box scores uh, from games, you know, like the late games and the stats and you didn't necessarily get the on demand that, that we Take for granted now, but certainly has really changed. I think the way that fans view the game um, from from a period, like I said, that was not all that long ago. I can totally see Carrick doing a number of things, media, team ops, or whatever. But wherever, so whether he goes the media route or he goes hockey ops directly, I could totally see this guy becoming a general manager of an NHL team. I could, I could completely see it happening. Absolutely. Uh, really bright guy. You know, he's one of those guys where I think whatever field he'd be in, he'd be totally a smart guy. He's very, you know, very curious guy, very, uh, I think, self-analytical, very um, detailed in, in the way he's thinking. I mean, we were even saying off the air, like his statements don't um, or his answers aren't just kind of off the cuff. Like there's almost a beginning, a middle, and the end, like, like you're writing, almost like you're writing an essay. Like he, right. he's just a very unique character. He's a very, um, yeah, I've, all my players I've met over the years, I've never really met someone quite like him. He, he's definitely, uh, he's definitely uh, built a little bit differently just in the way he approaches things and the way he, he thinks not only about hockey, but really about life. Absolutely. Let's get to our prospect of the week. This week, it's Connor McMichael of the Hershey Bears and the Washington Capitals organization. 2019 first-round pick. He's 22 years old. He spent the entirety of last season, his rookie year, in the NHL. But he was assigned to Hershey um, in November of this year after having a, you know, a slow training camp, was on the wing, playing only a couple minutes a night um, as well. It's been an interesting tenure in Hershey, let's say you look at it from a, a macro view, 15 points, in 25 games. You're probably thinking, Oh gosh, like something's really up here. But what I will say is eight of those points have come in the last 12 games. 10 of his 15 points have been five on five primary markers. And also according to data from, from Instat, actually McMichael is in one of the top, I think 98th or 99th percentile of even strength scoring chance generation, very encouraging things that you want to see of a player where you're sending him down to be, you know, playing 20, 22 minutes, get that confidence back. 
it would appear he's doing the right things and it's not by virtue of you know empty calorie measures not just on the power play or whatnot he's been a driver even strength how much longer do he'll be in hershey i think ideally he'd be in hershey the rest of the year maybe not ideally for him but uh, ideally for his long-term growth he's uh He's a great example, I think, of a player that he was kind of what I call the, the pandemic players. He came in that year um, as a uh, as a twenty year old at the time, but uh, it was would have been when it was his final junior season. Um, right. That year, he played with Matt Molson, so the longtime NHL veteran, six hundred games, and but it was playing against certainly a different level of competition from the typical AHL um, level. Um, and then last year he gets, uh, bumped up to the NHL, uh, stays there the whole season, but he's not even, he's not playing heavy, heavy minutes, right? Like he's not playing no. top line minutes. Um, and I think now this year, like you said, he obviously had a slow start in Washington, took him a while just to get back into the flow of things. Uh, you, and this happens so often for young players, like they come down and, um, they're playing in a much different role. Uh, they're playing all situations. Uh, they're playing 20, 25 minutes, depending on the position. Like, you know, they're not any longer kind of just a, a role player. Now they're asked to be the, the real focal points uh, of the club. So he's on an excellent team this year. Right now he's playing with Joe Snively and uh, Henrik Borgstrom. So uh, certainly at this level, very highly skilled players. Um, and he's on a club, I think, and the reason I say I'd like him to, to stay in Hershey this whole year is get to experience a playoff stretch drive. Uh, the Bears right now are um, uh, second uh, in the league in points. Uh, so they're kind of like one, two. Uh, they've been back and forth with Coachella Valley. And um, there's a great chance that this is a Bears team that can go far in the playoffs. So if he could get that, that um, two-month playoff run, I think it would just do wonders for his game. And I think back to a player like Zach Wierenski. Um, he came in um, at the end of his college season from the University of Michigan, went to Cleveland, um, and was part of their um, Calder Cup run. So he got two months of, of high, high-level hockey. Really the highest level you're going, going to get anywhere outside of the NHL is Calder Cup playoff hockey. And he got to experience that, got to be got to be the guy. And I think the same thing I'd like to see from Michael, where he can just – take that pressure on his back, take that opportunity and, and go with it. And let's see what he has. Also interesting to note that McMichael's playing center um, mm-hmm. with Hershey quite a bit. Wasn't doing that in Washington. I know he was drafted as a center, but you know, isn't everyone these days. Like all these guys are, are really um, kind of start out as center and become wingers. Do you see him as a winger or a center? Like, like a center is natural position that they are grooming him to be, or do you think he's just a kind of multiple options type of thing? Well, it's always easier, I think, uh, generally go center to wing than the opposite. So um, sure. push him as far as he can at center, see where his his ceiling is, where his limit is. Um, so far, I think he's handling it well. Now, granted, that's at the AHL level. Um, right. Certainly, I think the more, in general, the more a player can uh, be versatile and, and maybe he's never going to be one or the other. Maybe he's a player that can be um, – use back and forth i think that would be ideal um but for right now um yeah let's see where this goes um i'd like to not you know make any too too firm conclusions yet uh just see what he has um to offer and again i think yeah just 
play play down the stretch here because the American Hockey League it's a it's a it's a great test for young players to go through that playoff race and then certainly the expectations are high. Uh, it, I can tell you the Hershey Bears it's kind of called her cup or bust. Um, so he'll be asked to do a lot. Uh, a lot of responsibility will be given to him, and um, I want to see what he can do rather than you know kind of being you know up and down the lineup in Washington, in and out of the lineups, you know, sitting in the press box. He doesn't need that right now. He's 22 years old. He needs to play full time. And this is the best uh, way for him to do that. Let's get to our team of the week. And that is the Columbus Blue Jackets and the prospects they have with the Cleveland Monsters. There's two guys we want to really zero in here Mm -hmm. um, on Columbus. You know, at the top is a very young team. A lot of the guys that um, maybe would have been featured a couple weeks ago uh, aren't there anymore. You know, notably Kirill Marchenko, who we right away first episode, like, let's get this guy props of the week. He will not be here very long. Guys, he's got like 10 goals already. Which sure is enough, just, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> um, you heard it here first from Patrick Williams. But let's get to Yurichek and uh, David Yurichek to start. 19 years old, sixth overall draft pick in, in last year's draft. 20 points in 24 games. Named the top defenseman at the World Junior Championship. You know, when I, when I watched him before the tournament, I thought that this guy could be in the NHL right now. I, I really thought it went and unsurprisingly dominated his peers. So now it's kind of like you look at him and I'm curious. I wonder, and you'd know best, is this a matter of him being best served, just continuing to dominate a level? Or is it more so a matter of like, I don't know if Columbus is the best place for him right now. Not to say that, you know, the NHL is not a good place for people, but just in terms of where they're at and the environment and, and him being so young. A little bit of both, maybe. Um, I think it's probably the fairest way to to put that. Um, I think certainly from a uh, performance level, certainly from what he's done, I think you could you could make a strong argument that uh, you know merit wise that he could be in the NHL right now. Um, but there, I think they're, they're sacrificing maybe some of the short term you know benefit of that uh, for for the long term view. And for example, like Tim Bernie's up in, in the NHL right now from the Cleveland roster on, on defense. And um, they want uh, they want him playing huge, huge minutes in Cleveland, like dominant 25 plus right. minutes a night. And, and and doing so in a league where you play a lot of three and threes and three and fours and, and seeing how, I mean, he's a horse, seeing how he can manage that workload. Um, how he can pace himself, which let's be honest, that is um, part of part of learning how to be a pro um, is knowing when you can go, and I think maybe even more importantly when you cannot go. Uh, I, I spoke with Trent Vogelhuber, the uh, first year head coach with Cleveland. That that was a, a real key area of focus for them. They want him um, learning that element of the game. I mean, everyone who sees him right off the bat. I mean, you don't have to be exactly a a, a hockey um, expert to 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 see what he has, right. To see the, the way he thinks the game, the way he, he skates well for a big guy. Um, certainly the shot, the instincts, everything. Now it's just getting that up to a pro um, North American level. And I think if, uh, you know, if, if, if Columbus maybe was really making a push for a playoff spot and, you know, you you felt like, all right, here's a guy can maybe push us over the edge. Maybe that would be a different story, but you know, mm-hmm. obviously Columbus 
in some ways has the luxury now, you know, because they're not really in contention uh, of, of taking their time and, um, and letting them stay down in Cleveland and, and really learn, make mistakes away from the NHL spotlight and um, go with that. And I think this will be a, I'm almost certain this will be his last year in the American Hockey League. Um, yeah, I can't I see him coming back. No, I think, um, you know, Cleveland's in a, in a tight uh, playoff race already. Um, so see what he can do with that. Uh, you know, can he put that team on his back a little bit? Uh, and maybe they get into the playoffs. I mean, they're certainly going to have to shore up some things defensively as a team, but um, he's a big part of that equation for that team, whether or not they do make it. And then carry, carry that obviously into next season, go into training camp. And I think for sure, you know, pop four easily, I think on that Columbus roster next season. Yeah, playing more minutes as opposed to being in the bottom area of an NHL depth chart, probably the safe call there. Um, another one that we're going to talk about, the other player is, is Trey Fix Wolanski. Yeah. 24-year-old, you know, seventh-round pick in 2018. He's leading the team in scoring with 40 points in 31 games. And it's interesting. And this is someone that really, honestly, you put on my radar. He overcame an ACL, ACL injury in his rookie season. This year, he's he's on a one-year deal, sort of like a show-me contract with him. Mm-hmm. And he he's turning out to be not even just, you know, a good American hockey player, but someone that looks like, you know, is approaching the f- fourth, fifth line, whatever it may be, on the depth chart for Columbus, a player that could have some financial utility. Yeah, he's he's an interesting player, right? Like, you know, he's he's had a lot of different things thrown at him, right? Like a seventh-round pick, Um He's listed uh, around five seven. I I spoke with him. Um, you know, I don't know if he's five seven, but he is certainly built. Uh, I'll say that. Uh, he's like, taller or shorter? I, I think he's on on the sh- shorter side, or at least right. You know, right around there. But I mean, he's he's solidly built. Like you can tell, he's hard to move off the puck. Um, and you, you you stand to him, you know, after the game, and you can certainly, you know, if if. If you were wondering why he's hard to push off the puck, it's not hard to figure out. Like he's built, right? Like he's solid. Um, he he has that part of his game. Like he's plays way bigger than his size on paper. Um, he's he's interesting in the sense, like so. Again, I was talking to Boba Hooper about this, and you know, he has tons and tons of offensive ability, but they don't want him to be the kind of player that's kind of a <clears throat> one side of the puck player power play specialist where he really is what's I think his barrier right now is, is the defensive side of the game. And I think to his credit and to Cleveland's credit, they've uh, really tried to hone in on that. Um, now again, he's another player that right has just had a, a tough start to his career. Um, he, he came in as a young rookie in 2019, you know, had a decent season. And then again, comes into that pandemic year, you're off the ice for almost a full year in terms of game competition. Then he plays nine games and uh, gets hurt, right? So just kind of, you know, a little bit of a case of like anything could go wrong, did go wrong for him early on in his career. So he's really had to make that push back um, just to even kind of get on on track once again. So um, he's he's 20, 23 years old, so he's, He's still on the younger side of things, but, um, you know, certainly offensively he's producing, right? Like uh, 40 points, 31 games, um, everything you want to be on that side. But what his, 
what's really going to separate him. And he's well aware that there's no, <clears throat> there's no mystery there for him or for, for the team is that defensive play. Um, if you can just get it up to at least a, a decent standard, I think then certainly uh, Columbus would be very interested and have him in their lineup full time. For sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, you kind of touched on it there, but the player like that, that like he does not have elite skill offensively. Mm-hmm. Very few do. My point being, though, is you've got to have more tools in your toolkit. And it mm-hmm. totally makes sense that they're really harping on that. Because, right, if he's going to be an everyday NHL player, or let alone a guy that plays a couple games and is a utility depth piece, he has to shore up that game and add more skills there. But that's all we have for this week. And be sure to tune in next week. We'll have part two of our chat with Connor Carrick, among our other usual topics. But anyways, thanks so much for listening. And we'll, we'll catch you next time.